Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you and glorify your holy name. Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in our midst this morning, in our congregation, in our hearts. Father, we thank you for the presence of your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit among us. And I ask you to speak today into our hearts and our lives. Father, I pray that you use me as a vessel for you and for your glory, that your word will go forth, that it be your heart felt and received in this place. And Father, I pray that you use me as a vessel for your glory, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you have already ordained for this purpose. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. This week we are in Parsha Vayigash. Um, we, what about you guys? This year's flown by so far. I mean, we're only, what, a weekend to the 2017, but I mean, the Hebrew year, 5775, has already started flowing by, uh, 5777. So if you, if you haven't looked ahead at all, You'll notice when you do look ahead, next week is our last Parsha in Bereshit, in Genesis. So we're about to move into Shemot and Exodus already. So we've already blown through the entire book of Genesis by the time we get together next Shabbat. So this year is flying by. Um, and as it does, I, as, as things are moving uh, along, the Lord is clearly doing something in our midst, in our congregation, uh, in our lives Every week when we come together to worship, the Spirit of God is just prevalent and moving. Um, and, and this isn't meant to just be like an advertisement for be here or be here or miss out. But, but the Spirit is moving and it's awesome and it's powerful. And I believe God's got so much more in store. Um, and as we look at this week's Parsha, Parsha by Gash, I think it puts things into perspective for us for who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, because the Ruach HaKodesh isn't just in our lives. The Holy Spirit isn't just in our lives. The salvation of Yeshua isn't just in our lives so that we can feel better about life around us. It's not in our life. We don't have the presence of the Spirit flowing in our services just so we can get the warm fuzzies on Saturday morning, right? The Spirit of God is in us and the salvation of the Lord is upon us for one reason and one reason only. We take it to people out there. That they also find salvation or filled with the Ruach HaKodesh the Holy Spirit and are able to then turn and do the same thing in other people's lives that they may find salvation. Uh, and it's to continue to flow and to move. And, and so part of the reason we're doing this new Bible study on Tuesday nights for the next 10 weeks uh, is so that as we are, are moving forward in what God is doing in our lives, that we are actually moving forward. You know, we're part of a Messianic Jewish movement that to a large part has kind of stopped the movement part. Um, I don't know if we need prune juice or what, but we need to move again. We need stuff to start going uh, in a direction. We've kind of become stagnant as a movement um, and as a congregation. Some of you look at me like it's a shock I would say something like that. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> go back and listen to podcasts. It's not the first time. Uh, but but as, we, as we're moving through with what God is doing in the body and the side, there's so much more He has in store for us, especially in these days. Look. We are 13 days away, I think it is, from what potentially could be one of the most dramatic changes to our country that we've ever seen. Um, uh, we'll figure out in you know, maybe 14 days, 15 days, whether it's a good thing or not. I don't know yet. Um, but, but we're going to experience this dramatic change. There is going to be shock in the system. 
And if you think we've experienced wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and, and so on and so forth that Yeshua speaks of when it talks about the days that are to come, if you think we've experienced those now or up to this point, buckle up, hang on, the ride's about to get bumpy because it's only going to get worse from here. All right? And so it's important that we as believers start to, to realign and refocus uh, our hearts and what we feel the Lord is doing with what the Lord is actually doing um, and get on board with it and get behind it. So with that said, I think that this is Parsha, Parsha by Gosh and looking at, at, um, at Joseph's life and his final revelation to his family of who he was, it gives us a really good foundation for a context and a basis for how to walk out what the Lord has called us for. So in Genesis 44, this is Parsha begins with verse 18, what we see is the beginning of, uh, of what sets up for Joseph to actually reveal himself, who he really is to his family. We know for two weeks now, Joseph's life's been kind of in turmoil in the, the Parshot, as we read through the Parshot each week. Uh, first he's sold by his own family into slavery, and then um, things start going really good for him in slavery. I, mean, I don't maybe it's a stretch to say he's still a slave, maybe it's a stretch to say things were going good, but it seemed to be going okay for him. And then things took a turn for the worst again, and he gets put in jail. And then things start going really well for him in jail. And then he's left there for two years when he should have been released sooner, and so on and so forth, until finally he is brought before Pharaoh, who builds Pharaoh's dream to him. And all of these things begin to go into place where his vision that the Lord gave him for his life and for his people starts to come into fruition. And then all of a sudden, one day, when he thought all the bad stuff was behind him, in walks ten of his 11 brothers, particularly the 10 brothers that sold him into slavery in the first place, to beg him for food. And he recognized them immediately. But because he looked like an Egyptian, and he spoke like an Egyptian, and he acted like an Egyptian, and for those that have the song in their head again, you are once again welcome. Because um, he walked like an Egyptian. Um, now all of you have it, so now you really are welcome. But uh, as he's going through this, brothers are standing there, and they don't recognize him. He recognized them breaks his heart, he's not sure what's going on, and each time now, two times his brothers come before him, and each time he puts them through test after test after test to see if their heart has changed, to see if they are really different than they were when they sold him into slavery, because he's starting to realize, I mean, imagine being Joseph, whose brothers uh, uh, gave him this hard time, I and mean, you think your siblings gave you a hard time, his brothers gave him a hard time, because he was excited for what he thought the Lord was showing him for his future and what was going to happen. And his brothers are like, yeah, like we're going to bow before you. Come on, who are you? Who do you think you are? And then Joseph's standing there sitting on the throne and in comes 10 of his 11 brothers and they bow before him. You know, in some ways, Joseph, if I was Joseph at least, when that happened, I'd have lost all control not to laugh. Like you got to see the humor in this, right? Like at some point I'm going to lose control and I'm going to crack up and then they're going to go, what are you laughing about? Nothing, 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 nothing. Don't worry about it. It's okay. The whole process goes on. But uh, I kind of see this smirk start to move up on one half of his face and then walks his brothers and fall on their face before him. So here they are the second time in front of him. This time they brought Benjamin with them, the youngest brother, Joseph's only full brother uh, from the same mother. Uh, it's not a brother from another mother. It's a brother from the same mother. Um, and so they, they, they're all standing before him now. And he sees as they've gone through this whole thing where he snuck their money and the, the divination goblet and everything in Benjamin's bag and sends him out and then they chase after him and bring him back and they arrest Benjamin and he's in jail and now Judah the one that sold Joseph into slavery is the one that goes before him and says look I know you're like Pharaoh I know this is a big thing the, the, the word Vayigash this is fun right? this is really fun the word Vayigash is only used a few times in the Hebrew and the Torah and it's used for 
different scenarios, but the meaning of the word is pretty much the same. You know, we think by gosh, and he went forth, or he went to, right? We think he just stepped in up to, to Joseph to talk to him. But by gosh, is he um, in, in I don't know, growing up in when I did in the 90s and 2000s, we say, oh, he bowed up to him. You know, he stood up and he acted uh, harsh. It's it's a defensive uh, went before. It's not like just humbly went in. I'll come in. No, by gosh, means he defensively stood up. Uh, before him, and he basically was saying, look, I'm going to defend even if I die. And so he stands up before Joseph, and he goes, look, I know you're like Pharaoh. I know you're a powerful guy, but let me lean in for a minute, whisper in your ear a little something, because I can't let my brother die in, in jail here or kill my father. And he sees that the one that sold him out, the one that cast him into what became his own personal hell, is the one that is standing here before him saying, I can't do this again. I can't let this happen again. I've got to defend him. Um, and so as all of this happens, uh, verse chapter 45, verse 1 is where we pick up. Uh, Joseph now has heard the whole spiel from, from, from uh, Judah. And verse 1 of chapter 45 says, Now Joseph could no longer restrain himself in front of all those who were standing by him. And keep in mind, he's already gotten up out of the room and cried once. Uh, to the dismay of even his Egyptian servants, he got up and left the room because of the motion he couldn't control anymore. So now he's really bubbled up. It's as high of a, a restraint as he's got. He can no longer hold back his emotion. He now sees that his brothers have truly repented and have changed their ways. And here's Judah speaking to him and saying, look, I can't let Benjamin die here. Uh, so he says, get everyone away from me. So no one stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. But he gave his voice to weeping so that the Egyptians heard. In other words, he was so loud, these people were no longer in his throne room. They were down the hall somewhere, but he was crying so loud and so uncontrollably that everybody heard it. Tradition tells us that all of Egypt heard his wailing. He was crying so loud that everybody heard it. It says, but he gave his voice to weeping so that the Egyptians heard and Pharaoh's household heard. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Could you imagine you're standing before this guy that all along you thought was just some Joe Schmo Egyptian, like all the rest of them, these ridiculous costumes or face paint. Um, but alas, here's, you know, this guy's actually our brother. Like he knows Joseph's name. We never mentioned it, but he knows it. Um, he's asking about our father. What? Wait, if this really is Joseph, wait, we put him here. We cast him into slavery. We sold him out and left him to die. We lied to our father and said that he was dead. And now what's going to happen to us because he's the most powerful person in Egypt. He is the most powerful person and the most powerful nation on the face of the planet of the day. And you've got to imagine in their mind, they're going, what is about to happen to us? It says, and his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Verse 4. And this is where we start to see the heart of Joseph come out. Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come, come near me. So they came near. I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold to Egypt, he said. So now don't be grieved and don't be angry in, our, in, in your own eyes that you sold me here since it was for preserving life that God sent me here before you. Pretty mature statement, right? Look, don't be upset. It, it kind of sucked for a while, but don't be upset because it really wasn't you. Like, you really didn't have a part in this. Kind of like uh, Judas, right? Uh, did Judas 
really sell Yeshua out or was it part of what God had in store anyways? And Judah just played, Judas just played his part. Um, and you got to wonder, as I often do, if Judas had merely repented like Peter did, because there really wasn't a huge difference between Peter's sin and Judas's sin. If Judas had just repented when uh, Yeshua was put on the stake, especially when Yeshua stood before him, rather than killing himself, how much different the story would have been. Imagine if Judas had the heart of Joseph. It says, so now don't be grieved and don't be angry in your own eyes that you sold me here since it was for preserving life that God sent me here before you. For therefore... Uh, for there has been two years of famine in the land, and there will be five more years yet with no plowing or harvest. But God sent me ahead of you to ensure a remnant in the land and to keep you alive for a great escape. <laughs> and keep you alive for a great escape, right? Joseph, has, he's the most powerful man in Egypt. He has no clue what's awaiting his descendants. He has no clue that they're going into slavery in Egypt for 200 years. He has no clue that any of that's about to happen. But the Lord speaking through him says, but God sent me ahead of you to ensure a remnant in the land and to keep you alive for a great escape. So now, it wasn't you. You didn't send me here, but God. And he made me as a father to Pharaoh, Lord over his whole house and ruler over the entire land of Egypt. The preservation of the nation of Israel, the preservation and ultimately the... the uh, the growing of this child that becomes this grand nation. All occurred, it, it, it all was uh, developing in the midst of what was one of the most heathen nations in the world in that day. God used the nations as an incubator for his people. He used the nations as an incubator for his people. And Joseph recognized this. Look, Joseph's looking back at his life as his brothers are bowing before him going, told you so. But he's also going, see, God had something more. It wasn't just, maybe I should have held off on sharing this uh, vision, but it wasn't just that my brothers are going to bow before me. God had more in store. And it took him 22 years to get from being sold by his brothers to being restored to his brothers for him to realize what the Lord was doing. It took 22 years of being cast out in Galut in in uh, diaspora from his people, being cast out into the suffering of the world around us for him to realize what God was doing through him for them. And he says, don't be angry, don't be upset. You didn't send me here. The Lord did. You were merely tools and vessels that he used, but the Lord sent me here. And you got to understand, he sent me here for you. That there would be salvation for you. That there would be preservation for you. That there would be a future for you and for your children and for your children's children. He sent me here for you. And so there's this whole incubation of the nation of Israel in Egypt. Chapter 46, verse 1 says, this is as the brothers have now been sent back to, uh, to Jacob to go get Jacob and bring him to Egypt. And so Egypt, uh, Israel, jo uh, Jacob is on his way back now. And verse 1 of chapter 46 says, so Israel set out. Israel being Jacob, set out along with everything that belonged with him. When he came to Beersheba, when he came to the, the place of blessings, the well of seven, the place of blessings, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Notice how often Beersheba comes up in the discussion. Right? Abraham goes to Beersheba. Isaac goes to Beersheba. Jacob goes to Beersheba now at least twice, but likely three times minimum, that he goes to Beersheba, this place that ultimately they continue to interact with 
the presence and the covenant of the Lord. There's Sheba where God continues to remind and reveal his covenant with his people. And so here he is at Beersheba, the very same place where he dug the wells of his forefather, right? He's in the very same place. And the Lord shares this vision with him in verse 2. It says, in vision, visions of the night, God said to Israel, Jacob, Jacob, hineni, he said, here I am. Verse 3, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will turn you into a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. So for those that are wondering, uh, the, the count being a little off, right, between Genesis account and Acts, uh, where it says he went down 70 people in, uh, in Genesis, and then in Acts it says there were 75. Well, Jacob, his wife, and his two children were added to that number. I mean, sorry, Joseph, his wife, and his two children added to that number. So that's 74. Where did the 75th come from? It comes from this verse. I myself... Hashem speaking, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will, most, will also most certainly bring you up. Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. Jewish tradition tells us the 75th person, that extra person, was God himself who went with Israel into Egypt to protect them and to preserve them and ultimately to bring salvation to them because God had something more in store. And as I said, God was incubating the nation as a whole within this nation of Egypt and it's an a image of a foreshadowing of what was to come where he would incubate the restoration of the remnant of Israel, those who had belief and fervent faith in Messiah Yeshua within the nations. Remember, I've told you before, there's never been a point in history since the first century in which there were not Jewish believers living Jewish lives among the Jewish people, including the nations who have attached themselves with them. This includes all of the years where the body of Messiah longly, uh, mostly said, you cannot be Jewish and believe in Yeshua at the same time. You're either one or the other. You leave one to become the other, right? We know the disciples didn't do this. We know Yeshua didn't do this. Uh, it would be kind of funny, though, if Yeshua believed in himself and left his own religion that he developed to, to believe in himself. You've got to see the humor in it. But never happened. But there's always been this remnant, and this remnant has always been incubated within the nations. Third and fourth century, the body of Messiah begins to go through this dramatic change where they stop being a Jewish-led, Jewish entity of believers with Jews and non-Jews alike involved to being a Gentile-led, Jewish-excluded movement. And if Jews wanted to become a part of it, Jews had to give up their heritage and their family and everything they've ever known and walk away from that to become a Christian. And so in the midst of all of this, there has always been this incubation of a remnant of Jewish people following the will of God in the midst of the nations. Until the late 1800s with the rise of Zionism. And with the rise of Zionism also came a rise in Jewish believers in the church going, oh wait, there's still Jewish. Like my Brit Milah, my circumcision didn't suddenly undo itself because I became a believer. I'm still Jewish. Maybe I can still be Jewish and believe in Yeshua. And so the birthing of what now is the Messianic Jewish movement occurred in the late 1800s co uh, coexistently with the foundations of modern Zionism. And ever since that day, we have seen a continual rise of the Messianic Jewish movement and a yearning within the greater body of Messiah, the Gentile church, for more understanding of the Jewish roots of the faith. Here we see in chapter 46 as Israel, Jacob, is making his way back, uh, to, or making his way to Egypt to go and to find his long lost son and to be restored and re reunited with him. Uh, God tells him, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will turn you into a great nation there. 
I will incubate your people into a nation in the midst of the nations. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also most sure it certainly go uh, bring you up. Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. Um, not only does Jacob return back to the promised land to be buried when he dies, but ultimately the Lord brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and brings them back to the promised land, and we see the restoration of our people to the land. The reason I, I talk about this Parsha in this way this week um, is because I think it's important that as believers, as Messian Jewish believers, that we understand the connection to the Brechet Shah from, from Joseph's life, and we understand what God is doing here. So if you'll turn to Romans 11. Romans 11 puts great perspective in the, the idea of Jew and Gentile in the body of Messiah and what God's intention for the body of Messiah is. Uh, and it gives us great perspective for what the Messianic Jewish movement is. But Romans chapter 11, verse 1 says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he knew beforehand. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. And he goes on to talk about what uh, Elijah prayed before Adonai. Verse 11, skipping down, says, I say then, they did not stumble Israel. Israel did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, God didn't let Israel deny Messiah, uh, deny Yeshua as Messiah just so that God would cast him in the pits of hell, did he? There had to have been more to the story. It says, God, uh, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their false steps, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Just like Joseph. God didn't let Joseph suffer just for the sake of suffering, right? No, that suffering had a greater purpose to it. That greater purpose was the salvation of the nation of Israel, the birthing of the nation of Israel, the foundation for what gives us the seed by which the nations would be blessed of Abraham. Remember the promise to Abraham was, by your seed the nations will be blessed. It brought about the opportunity for Messiah Yeshua to be birth of a woman and bring salvation to humanity. Verse 12, now if their transgression leads to riches for the world, in other words, if their denial of Messiah brings salvation to the nations and their lost riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles. I spotlight my ministry. If somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And skipping to verse 20, True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, God has used the nations. Salvation has been brought to the nations, to the goyim, the nations. And, and understand, outside of Yiddish, the, the Hebrew word goy is not a bad word. Uh, in Yiddish, it's a derogatory term for Gentiles. Uh, but it's not a bad word. Goy just means nation. Singularly, goyim means nations. Israel is called goy goyim, the nation of the nations. We're called a good zedek, a righteous nation. We're called goy adonai, the nation of the Lord. We are called a goy just like everybody else. But the purpose to Israel denying Messiah in the, the, as a whole in the first and second century was not, <coughs> was not so that the Gentile church could develop in the third and fourth century and just live, leave Israel behind. But instead, it was so that the nations would be able to find salvation as well and drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. See, in the same sense that Joseph was not allowed to be sold into slavery by his own brothers simply for the fact 
that Joseph could see his dreams come true, his visions come true, or just to see him suffer. He was sold into slavery by his brothers at the allowance of Adonai so that his brothers could be saved. You and I as believers have not gone through the turmoil and the pain and the anguish that we have gone through as believers in Yeshua HaMashiach just so that we could suffer or just so that we could have eternal life. But we've gone through the suffering that we've suffered so that those around us will see the light of Messiah. So that those around us will find salvation in us just as the foundations of the birthing of the nation of Israel and the children, the household of Jacob, were able to find salvation because of what God was doing through Joseph in Egypt. And in the same sense that the remnant of the nation of Israel in its earliest days with the 70 strong that came from, from, the, the, uh, from the land of Canaan into Egypt, just in the same sense that that 70 strong ultimately becoming 74 when Joseph's household is added to it, just in the same sense that they were incubated like a baby in the womb. They were incubated so that ultimately this nation who is being protected by the nations can be birthed out and bring salvation to the world. We as believers, both Jew and non-Jew, have to recognize that the last 1700 years of history for the body of Messiah was one, not for the sake of destroying the Jewish people. Two, it was not for the sake of elevating the Gentiles. Three, it was not for the sake of starting a new religion, but instead it was for the sake of incubating the remnants of Jewish believers and Gentile believers who attached themselves to Israel who would come out of that in the days that we live in. When the end of the Gentiles, the, 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 the completion of the Gentiles are brought in and the nation of Israel is restored and Jerusalem is reestablished in unification under Jewish hands and the nation, the, the, the Jewish, Messianic Jewish uh, remnant would arise and be the head of the body of Messiah again so that we can usher in the return of Messiah. All of this was to get us to the day that Messiah returns and sits on the throne for all eternity, just in the same sense that everything that Joseph's brothers did when they sold him into slavery was done so that ultimately Joseph could sit on the throne in Egypt and bring salvation to his people. We haven't gone through the stuff we've gone through individually and as a movement. We haven't gone through the stuff that we've gone through individually and as a greater body of Messiah just so that we could sit on our laurels and do nothing just so that we can look at the world around us and get upset because everybody isn't living like we are or get upset because the world around us who doesn't believe in God or a godly life in the first place gets upset because our godly life offends them. Our job is to share the gospel of Messiah in our lives before our words because the gospel's purpose is to offend sin in people's lives so that they will find salvation. Our job is to be Joseph who even in the midst of, of slavery and imprisonment awaited the truths and the promises that God had in store for his life. Our life as believers in Messiah is for the purpose of allowing the, the presence of the Lord to be incubated in the midst of this disgusting and despicable fallen world so that when Messiah comes back, he has a bride awaiting for him that doesn't just include the 30 or 40 people sitting in this room or the, the four or 500 in the churches around us or whatever else, but that it includes as many of God's creation as humanly possible. Because the reality is, is it isn't humanly possible. It is divinely possible. And God has chosen, chosen to use us to be a part of it. You've got to understand. You've got to wrap your heads around the reality that our lives mean nothing without the Lord's presence in them. And the Lord's presence in our lives mean nothing if we are not sharing that presence with the world around us. God is allowing us to exist in these days 
The body of Messiah exists in these days. The modern Messianic Jewish movement has arisen in these days so that we could be an incubated people for the presence of the Lord so that salvation may come to the world around us through what the Lord is doing in us because of the salvation the Lord has provided for us 2,000 years ago. We as believers today become greedy. We become upset. We become downtrodden because the world isn't the way we would like it to be. How do you think God feels? You think it's the way he wanted it to be? We can turn back to Genesis 1 to 3 and see it is nothing like he wanted it to be. But he wants to make it how he wanted it to be in the first place and he has chosen to use each and every one of us who have chosen to accept his blood atonement upon our lives to be a part of that. And it's time that we as believers recognize that God is using the world that we live in today to incubate what he is doing in our lives and in our communities and in our congregations so that this latter day rain, this latter outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh does fervently flow and impact the lives of those around us. How many have heard that term before, the latter rains? It's popular in Pentecostal churches. The latter rains, let the latter rains fall. It's popular in places that like to say Shekinah. The Shekinah glory. Hebrew, Shekinah. Um, but uh, the, the latter rains, they, they actually have a purpose. And, and we don't understand it today because we don't live in an agricultural society. But in, in Israel, in the Middle East, the latter rains are important. And there's a concept, and, and there's Hebrew words for them that at the moment I can't draw out of memory for some reason. Uh, I don't know if the memory bank's down that they're stored in or what, but uh, USB hasn't been attached. Uh, there, there's the early rains and the latter rains. And, and the, the, in Israel, there's a rainy season that occurs from basically November through March. Um, and, and in this rainy season is when the real waters fall upon the, har- the crops so that there's a greater harvest that is able to come. But every Israeli farmer longs for the early rains, which happen, if they're going to come, they're going to come sometime in October ahead of the rainy season and when these early rains fall they fall outside of the normal time for rain in Israel but they fall in drastic portions kind of like what we get every time it rains here but it only happens briefly there Um, but it falls on these drastic portions and and if you've ever been in Israel when it starts to rain people get excited there's new life there's new hope there's new excitement for what the Lord is doing and what could be happening uh, but these early rains occur, and then the, 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 if those early rains come, it allows for an even greater harvest than just what the rainy season is able to produce. And then every Israeli farmer longed for the days when the latter rains would come, and the latter rains would come in April if they were going to come. And if the latter rains came, they were just like the early rains. They were tremendous downpours, but they happened ex, uh, extra or outside of the regular rainy season. They were extraordinary when they occurred. And everybody longed for these uh, latter rains, these latter pourings of water to fall to, to make an even greater harvest. Could you imagine if there were early rains, rainy season, and latter rains in a place that never gets rain and the harvest that could come from it? And every Israeli farmer longed for these days. Acts 2 was the early rain. We are in the rainy season. We are experiencing the pouring down of the rain of God, the presence of God, the Ruach HaKodesh. For 2,000 years, we have been in the rainy season. We should be longing for the latter rains now. The early rains have come. We are awaiting the latter rains and the greater harvest that will come out of those latter rains. And the Messianic Jewish movement is a prophetic reality of those latter rains occurring and coming. 
and there is more in store. And as the body of Messiah begins to traverse the days that lay ahead of us, we must lean into these latter rains. We must understand that the Lord is wanting to do something through us in the days that we live in so that those that are hopeless find salvation. We must understand that our faith is not about us, but about the world around us. Just like the nations who were brought in uh, in the first century were told, look, you didn't, you know, Israel didn't come, uh, deny Messiah, they didn't reject Messiah so that you could be saved or so that you could replace them. Israel's denial of Messiah was so that you could receive the Lord so that you could bring him back to them. God didn't write off the Jewish people when he let Gentiles in. His plan had always been Jew and Gentile. Just look at Israel coming out of Egypt. There was a mixed multitude that left and stood at Mount Sinai. It was never intended to be us versus them. It was intended to be the people of God. The people of God. Amechad, one people. Amechad Adonai, one people of the Lord. That is what God intended. And he's allowed this last 2,000 years of the body of Messiah to be an incubation period among the nations. So that the same thing that Joseph's restoration to his brothers and the salvation that was brought to the nation of Israel because of it was a foreshadowing of we can experience in reality now. And it's not just about Jews coming to faith. It is to the Jew first and also to the nations. But it is not just about Jews. It is about every single person who breathes the breath of life, the Ruach Haim, finding the truth of the Lord's salvation for their lives. It is about dry bones living. And the question is, are we willing to get out of the way, to stop wallowing in self-deprivation and self-despair and self-depression because of the things we see around us? Are we willing to stop over-concentrating on the things of this world and recognize the power, dominion, and authority we've been given in the Ruach HaKodesh over this world so that others might come to know salvation? We as believers allow these rabbit trails to take us on paths that end up destroying the Master Messiah in us because we want to talk so much about things that really, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter. Look, U.S. politics, it absolutely affects our lives in the here and now. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People lost their lives in a shooting in Fort Lauderdale Airport yesterday. In the grand scheme of things, does who sits in the Oval Office affect their lives? Not in the least. But you know what could? The message of Messiah. In the grand scheme of things, we should constantly be looking for those people, not worrying about the things that may or may not affect our lives. Because the day is going to come when a sword's put to our neck. And our political affiliations, our opinion on the move of the Ruach HaKodesh, what families we come from and what our bank accounts look like won't make a difference. The only thing that will is our faith in Messiah and the only difference it will make is eternally. And it's important that we answer the call of the Great Commission that we recognize that we are here to see others come to the salvation that was brought 
through the seed of Abraham, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we thank you for being a God who is ever living and whose word is ever living and who continually speaks fervently into our lives and our hearts and directs our ways. Father, we thank you for being a God who cherishes his creation even when we mess up your creation. Father, we thank you for being a God who has provided your salvation, who has given it freely for all to receive. We thank you that it is as simple as vocalizing faith in you and receiving your love. Father, I pray that you begin now, even among us as believers, but especially among those listening that have yet to know Messiah Yeshua as their Savior. Father, I pray that you begin to work a work of recreation. Mold us into the image and likeness that you have desired for us to be for all these years. Let us recognize that all of the mess we've gone through in our lives has been to bring us to the ultimate reality of being used by you in every divine moment and appointment that you lay before our feet. And let us lean on you and on your strength and on your shalom, shalom, your perfect peace in those moments, even when they are disheartening, to know that you are in control and that you are working and moving. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.